Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Ron Tight is a best-selling author, speaker, producer, and entrepreneur who has always blurred the lines between art and commerce. He has been an award-winning advertising writer and a creative director for some of the world's most respected brands, including Air France, Evian, Fidelity, Hershey, Johnson & Johnson, Kraft, Intel, Microsoft, Volvo, and many others. He is the founder of Church & State, an agency that helps brands navigate the unified worlds of advertising and content by creating stuff that people want to see, not stuff they have to see. Ron is also the host and executive producer of the hit podcast, The Coop, and has written, produced, and performed a hit play. He has written for television, as well as been the executive producer and host of award-winning comedy show, Monkey Toast. Other accolades include penning a children's book, creating a branded art gallery, and publishing This Is That Travel Guide to Canada, a best-selling and award-winning satirical book. In demand as a speaker all over the world, Ron speaks to leading organizations about leadership, disruption, branding, and creativity. Ron's first book, Everyone's an Artist, or at least they should be, was published by HarperCollins in 2016. His most recent book, Think, Do, Say, How to Seize Attention and Build Trust in a Busy, Busy World, hit store shelves in October 2019. Ron, welcome to the One Away Show. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> it's like I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, and you're like, celebrities go like they all know about mics and stuff but anytime they go on an award show they have to lean into the mic like they don't know the yeah. basic you know so, principles of projection right so now you know now that you just did that what are what are we giving you an award for today you're giving me an award for the nicest canadian which is i mean that's you don't understand how difficult it is to win that award there are so many nice canadians you know, um, <laughs> I, I, that, that's a high honor. I know, uh, a few Canadians and they're all extremely genuine. So you, you have some mountains to climb for sure in, at least yeah. in my world, but you know, maybe by the end of the show, you'll convince me otherwise. Meanwhile, there's a Canadian in the background going, that guy's a prick. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. You and your hockey teams, you know? <laughs> okay. Well, Ron, uh, so great to have you here. What is the one away moment that you want to share with us today? Um, you know, there's been probably a hundred key moments, but I think the one that, yeah, I think the, the, the one that was kind of earlier and I think really did change the trajectory um, was, uh, are you ready for the date, Brian? This is going to oh. date myself here. I was 1987. I was 17 years old. And I had always, um, you know, or not always, as a, as a teenager, I remember seeing a movie by Bill Murray called Meatballs. Did you ever see that movie? I have, I have not. Go okay, ahead. so that's not the moment. But, but the, so I saw this movie by, starring Bill Murray called Meatballs, and it was about a summer camp. And, you know, and I saw this movie and I thought, what is, what is this? People go, people go away? 
to a camp and they play soccer and they swim in a lake and they go canoeing. Like, what are you talking about? And, you know, mom was like, yeah, like that's their summer camps. And I said, well, I, I want to go to one. And she's like, oh, we can't afford to, those are very expensive. We can't afford to send you. That's why you go to day camp. And um, day camp was just the lamest version of camp. And so I started investigating and there's something here called the Ontario Camping Association where all summer camps are a part of. And I realized that by the time I hit 17 that I could actually apply to be a camp counselor. And so like, think about it. So here's a 17 year old kid. And I really do treat that 17 year old kid as this separate person. Like I look at him now and I'm, I'm in awe of what a 17 year old kid did because here's a 17 year old kid whose family could not afford to do that, who had no background whatsoever and leaving the home to go on adventures, was never empowered to do that. And I just decided I want to experience this thing and I'm going to find out how to do it. I'm going to leave home for a summer. I'm going to make $350 as a junior counselor and I'm just going to go. And the only reason is to simply experience something that I'd never experienced before. And that, I just look at that and go like, what was he thinking? Like, who does that? Who wow. at 17 walks away from their high school friends for a summer, who walks away from earning money at a summer job, who leaves their family for the first time to go and play at summer camp. And I know some of those of you who have been to summer camp and were raised at summer camp, you might think like, well, that's ridiculously easy. You know, what stops tooting your own horn? But I think it must have been really difficult. And mm -hmm. I, you know, and you when you go to experience something you've never experienced before, um, it's really uncomfortable because you don't know the rules that apply. So for those who've been to summer camp, know that you go and you have these big duffel bags, you know, filled with clothes. I didn't know. I brought suitcases. Like if you want to look like a lame-o, go to summer camp with like hard suitcases that close with have buckles on them and stuff. So I showed up and I had no idea. Not only did I have no idea what was happening in camp, I didn't know that the camp I signed up to go for, the one that I applied and got hired to, was a predominantly Jewish camp. I'm not Jewish. And so I had no exposure really outside of, you know, maybe my dentist to the Jewish community where I grew up. There was no Jewish community where I grew up. And so I land in this camp, which is predominantly Jewish, but not officially Jewish, and I'm now interacting with an entirely different culture of people who come from a completely different socioeconomic background in a completely different part of the world. It just opened my eyes to a million different things, like a million different things. And I got to meet a mentor, the camp director, who was just, you know, was just an incredible human being who, who taught me so many different things. But it was more, it was less about skills and tactics and learning how to pitch a tent and stuff like that. It was more about kind of life philosophy. And here I, he was like, you're going to teach tennis. And I was like, I don't, I don't play tennis. He's like, eh, it's not, it's not that difficult. You're now the camp, you're the tennis instructor. Okay. <laughs> um, I became assistant head of drama. I really had no drama experience whatsoever. And I got exposed to the arts in a way that I'd never considered myself a creative person before. And now I'm, you know, I'm an executive creative director. I'm a chief creative officer. Like I, I, my life is filled with creativity. So there were just so many different things. The final piece I think that was really incredible about it was like, I remember that there was somebody who had like a Ferrari. And in my poor world, 
the only people with Ferraris were celebrities. Like, no, what random people don't buy Ferraris. And so I said, Who's Ferrari is that? And they're like, Oh, it's this guy's dad. I'm like, What is it? Who is he? And they're like, He's in the Schmata business, which is like the clothing business. And they're like, He made those Choose Life t shirts or something. And I was like, Hold on a second. You can just come up with an idea to make a stupid t shirt and you get a Ferrari. <sighs> that life is going to be good, you know? And, and I just suddenly saw, and it wasn't about the financial opportunity, but it was about the opportunity to do a million different wonderful things mm. with some stability upside. Wow. If that makes sense. Chills. Incredible. Uh, I think one for the fact that an opportunity that wasn't provided for you at home, you went out and sought out yourself and that that was an opportunity that exposed you to a completely new world of opportunity and possibility. Also, I, I'm not Jewish either, but the Jewish culture, I, I have a lot, of, a lot of network in and I'm blown away by the education around it. And it seems like you you walked into this world of education and uh, in, in viewpoints uh, and you were just intellectualized uh, maybe in a sense. So, Take, I, I want to go back in time before maybe sure. we talk more about this camp experience. Describe for us, you know, Ron, just growing up, it, whatever you're willing to share, you know, what it was like, you know, at home, maybe why, you know, beyond money as a financial constraint, you know, were ideas supported and expressed? Like what, what, you know, most kids want to just be like, oh, I'm just going to go to camp for the first, like, you know, I'm just curious what your upbringing was like from your perspective to say, you know, I want to go do something wildly different than anything I've ever experienced. Yeah. So I, you know, my, uh, my parents were divorced when I was one, my, I have three siblings who are all older. Um, so here's my mom, somebody who is physically disabled, who was physically disabled. She uh, had spina bifida, wasn't supposed to live past the age of six, had her uh, left leg amputated. She had a right leg that was a very badly um, disfigured, um, um, like, like a club foot. And so she could barely walk. And she was left in 1971 with four children on social assistance by herself. And I was one. And now, you know, so we were, um, we call those the lean years, you know. And um, so, you know, I remember that she had $25 a week for groceries for four kids and in 1971, which certainly bought more than it does today. But, you know, it was it was rough. It was rough. In some ways, it was rough. Now, we had an, an incredible family network of my cousins and my aunts and my uncles and, and stuff like that uh, early on. And then we moved. My mom met uh, my stepdad and we moved to from Montreal to Ontario. And, um, and he was a raging alcoholic, you know, so it wasn't fun. So I had a, you know, a real father who flew the coop when I was one and never paid a dime of support. And then I had a stepdad who was a raging alcoholic who made life at home, not great at all. I had a mother who was, you know, an incredible human being who faced so much adversity, but who really just had a sheltered existence and a sheltered you know, just didn't have much exposure to, to, to life and to travel and good. I mean, she was about survival, you know, it was about thriving. It was about surviving. And, um, 
you know, I had siblings who are all older, you know, the closest is five years older than me. So I was kind of left on my own to a little bit. And maybe that's where that creative spirit came in. But I was just like, I was a pretty social kid. I loved school because it was the safe place. It got me away from the yelling and the drinking and stuff. Not, not my drink. I wasn't drinking as a, <laughs> as a student. And it, uh, but it was a poor kind of area of town. And so, you know, it's not like there were, you know, people with wildly different experiences. That's for sure. And um, I just, I don't know. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was that rejected that life and changed the path. Because the path, when you're on that path, it's kind of, you know, you graduate from high school and you get a job. Like you just, you focus on getting a job. And then hopefully you do well at that job and maybe you get a, a promotion, you get a raise. Right. And that's, that was the, the life. And to go to camp at 17 really opened me up to this whole other world and then realizing, oh, I need to go to university. Like I need to do that. And so being the first in my family to go to university mm -hmm. and then kind of taking phys ed because that's what I thought I wanted to be a phys ed teacher. But then again, going, signing up for a new experience and then seeing the whole world open before you. Like you just keep, you're like, I'm just going to go through this door. And you're like, oh my God, this opens up a whole bunch of other things. You know, to that camp experience, I didn't go to camp because I thought I want to meet new people. I want to, you know, redefine success. I want to experience another culture. Like I didn't do all of they, All those were all just things that came after I left myself or opened myself up to opportunity and possibility. Wow. We're, we're too similar. Um, so thank you for the vulnerability and sharing uh, beyond very, very incredible context and just being born into a, a family, right? Where just by the nature of your situation, like it's a lot of like pain to grow up with and a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot to experience and you struggle through it through, from a young age, maybe without even realizing uh, what, what else was out there. Um, so thank you for sharing a question I had for you. You called it the, the sheltered experience um, as you look back on it. When you were going through, when you were growing up, did you realize to the degree or awareness, you know, even in the small sense that you were sheltered and that maybe urge or pull to go beyond your comfort, was that more of like an internal feeling? Like, like you kind of knew something more was out there for you and you just had to follow it. Camp just happened to be that, you know, experiment to, to go see what was out there. I'm just, I, I just am curious how this all played out. Yeah. You raise a good point because I think you, you only know what you know. And even very affluent kids raised in very affluent, you know, environments, they only know what they know. They just think the rest of the world is like that. But I like, you know, we grew up in an apartment building and, you know, it was a kind of a rough apartment building. And maybe I didn't realize like, oh, maybe this isn't the nicest place, but like you only need to see, you know, urine in a hallway once, not 50 times to think like, maybe this isn't how people should live. Mm. You know, like maybe this isn't, cause man, people on TV, they don't show this on TV. This isn't the dynasty, you know? And again, not that I was gunning for anything that was, you know, richly extravagant, but I was just like, maybe I don't want urine in my hallways. Mm. Like, let's start there. 
And so what's beyond this and what do other people have and what, what, how do they live their lives and, and then experiences. And just like, and I think the only people who provided that really were my teachers, you know, cause you think like, Oh, they like, what do you mean you went to school? And what do you mean you did a degree? And what do you, you know, like how did, what your life seems different. So for me, that very first step was like, you know, we need, we need to see people that look like us and sound like us to show us what success can look like for us which is why I think it's so critical when we've got these big social issues of, you know, kind of racial injustices that have, that have kind of been ever present, but more uncovered over COVID. Um, I was lucky that I had that, you know, that I had, I just certainly didn't come from a, from a family of privilege, but I had privilege and that I had other white, straight white males who were like, Hey, I'm over here. I look like you and sound like you. And I did this so you can do it. And so my first vision was like, I'll just be a teacher because that's the only thing I knew. It's the only experience that I could go, well, this is a step up, I think. I think being a teacher is a step up. So why don't I just do that? And because I had, n- I had no other exposure, I didn't know there was people that worked in advertising. I didn't know that you could write books. I didn't, you know, like all that kind of stuff. And so that was the first thing. So I went, I'm like, well, I guess I'll just be like my wrestling coach. I'll just do a phys ed degree. I guess that's what people do when they want to teach. So I'll just do a phys ed degree. And I did that. And then again, by leaving myself open to that and then opened up a whole other thing of other, other people doing interesting things from different backgrounds. And I was like, oh, man, I don't have to do that either. You know, I, you know, there was this moment where um, I finished a phys ed degree and I was working in the business school of Queens because I had no other options. I was just like, I didn't, I didn't think I wanted to teach at that point, but I didn't know what it, what, what it was going to be. And I, and I read a book called The Imaginary Girlfriend by John Irving. And John Irving, who wrote World According to Garp, Insider House Rules, and A Prayer for Own Meaning, he was a favorite author of mine. He wrote The Imaginary Girlfriend, where he talked about that he was a wrestler in college. And a really, he, John Irving was a really good wrestler. And when he hit college, he he continued wrestling, but discovered his love of writing that he didn't know that he had this passion to write. And so he was telling his coach, like, I can't come to practice because I have to go see my girlfriend. I have to go visit my girlfriend, but his girlfriend was his writing. And so he's cheating on his sports. And when I read that, I thought, all right, I get to have an imaginary girlfriend too. Like I don't have to do a phys ed thing. I can do whatever I want. And I tell you one of the, greatest moments of my life was sitting beside John Irving in a restaurant and getting to say to him, Hey, just so you know, I was a wrestler like you. I went to college to a university to do a phys ed program. I was going to do wrestling and I read the imaginary girlfriend and sitting with me here is the publisher of my second book. So Jesse Finkelstein from Page Two Publishing was with me at that dinner. And I was just, I just said to him, like, I, you don't know what that book meant to me. And I know everybody comes to you and says, oh, Garp was amazing. And Cider House Rules was amazing. I was like, no, for me, it was The Imaginary Girlfriend. It was that little, you know, autobiography you wrote. And that just showed me that, that there are other opportunities. There are other possibilities out there. And you just need to see other people doing them for you to be inspired and informed to do it yourself. So much serendipity in that moment where, you know, the book for you showed you finding love in in different ways and how you could, it could create that for yourself. I just think it's fascinating that you, the author was right there. Um, It was incredible. 
By the way, Jesse's Jesse's a wonderful human. Um, she's incredible. Yeah, she's a good person. Um, okay, but I'm I'm gonna share. She's gonna be embarrassed by this. Okay, but I have to share. I have to share this. It's my favorite Jesse story. So Jesse and I and another mutual friend, Tracy Finkelstein, not related, is with us at dinner, and I text Jesse and I go, "Is that John Irving? That's John. That's John Irving." And I'm like, "Look at your phone. Look at your phone." She's in publishing. She's like, "Oh yeah, maybe." So we go through the whole dinner, right? And I'm freaking out. It's my favorite author. I'm with the person who published my second book. They get up to leave and he's with two women who I assume are his wife and his daughter. Don't know. But so I turn to the younger of the two and I go, is that John Irving? And she's like, yeah, yeah, it's him. And I realized then that John Irving lives in Toronto. I know that John Irving lives in Toronto, but I'd never seen him before. And he lived across the street from the restaurant. And so I, you know, I, I said all that stuff to him, you know, thank you. You just mean so much to me, whatever. And he was very touching and warm and he turns to leave. But as he turns to leave, he comes face to face with Jesse, who was just kind of sitting there. And Jesse just looks up at him, sticks out her hand, shakes his hand and says, congratulations. And he's like, uh, thanks. And then walks out. And there's this beat of silence. And I just look at Jesse and I go, did you just say congratulations? <laughs> She's like, I froze. I didn't know what to say. I'm like, what were you congratulating him on? She's like, I don't know. It was just this congratulations. But you could tell that in the moment she's shaking his hand saying congratulations. She could not believe that she was actually saying the word congratulations to John Irving. So, oh my God. Uh, so awesome. What? What an incredible story! That's fun, <laughs> Jesse. I've, what a neat, ex- what I mean, what like what a neat experience for you both to share, right? She's helping you publish your next book, and you're across from an author who completely showed you something in the world and, and gave you maybe hope in a way. Uh, yeah. And you know, I mean, how oh, just the the world works in specific ways. I firmly believe that. Yeah, a hundred percent. Wow. So there's this there's this theme, you know, throughout um, like world, you know, the worlds that you know you constantly seeking new dimensions or new worlds and you know, experiences because of the sheltered life. I just want to touch on one more thing with the camp, and then I want to we can play this out into sure. how it maybe led you into the work you're in today. When you were at that camp, did you feel extremely out of place? Yeah. So. You're in this world where you, for the first time that you like never, you didn't feel like you belonged to whatsoever. How did you learn to navigate in a new environment with new people, new ideas for the first time in your life? I think it's to be, it's being comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's knowing like, like it's not, not a big deal and being completely open about it all. Like, you know, I still remember like the moment when I was like, nobody else has suitcases. Like everybody's got these these big duffel bags. Man, I look like an idiot here. And then I think I remember saying like to other people like, oh, I'm the suitcase guy, right? Like you just call it out. And you're like, oh, I like, I yeah, I don't, I've never seen that before. Like, what the heck is that? And so it's just being open to that experience and open to being, to learning new things. And, and also I think when you can share something maybe that you've got, that you can contribute, you know, with it. If you, if you have a unique perspective, which makes you feel out of place, 
there's something really rewarding about sharing that unique perspective. The mm-hmm. thing that makes you feel out of place, now you're contributing your own experience to this thing which has its own set of rules. Mm. You're, you're trying to help it, help shape it. And so I think I brought a really kind of unique perspective by just being completely comfortable with who I was. You know, I, I so one of those stories of sharing with that with that group was, I was a big Beastie Boys fan. I was a huge Beastie Boys fan, which musically was a new experience for me. I was never really a hip hop guy. Um, and I just really loved what they did. And so I said, what about, you guys don't know the Beastie Boys. And my co-counselor, Jay Blumenstein, was a massive Led Zeppelin fan. And he's like, who are these Beastie Boys? What are you talking about kind of thing? And I was like, oh, I'm going to share. I'm going to proudly share this great music with Jay. And so I go, okay, this is their album, Licensed to Ill. And I play, and the first song leads off with, Bow, 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 which is a Led Zeppelin lick, Led Zeppelin lick, or hook, or whatever musicians call that. And Jay was like, "That's Led Zeppelin. That's not the Beast Boys." And they had sampled Led Zeppelin, and so it was his first moment where he was like, "This is what? Well, who is this that they're sampling my favorite brand band? And I've never heard of this before." And so it was this really kind of cool moment where these worlds came together where my Beastie Boys weird hip hop world came together with this like classic rock Led Zeppelin crew in one song, three seconds in. Mm. It's incredible how music, right? Is it just, it's a universal connector of people and language and ideas. Cause I didn't know that was a Led Zeppelin thing. Cause I wasn't, a, I didn't know Led Zeppelin. Right. So we each shared with one another this in three seconds. He was like, that's Led Zeppelin. I'm like, that's the Beastie Boys. And they're like, oh, wow, this is a, a weird, you know, sampling. Totally. I think also what you said, though, is really profound. And I think a great point to build off of, too. The fact that while you felt maybe so uncomfortable in a new environment, your your advantage or your unique characteristic was the fact you came from a different world and that you could help them experience things in a way that, they've never seen just as so you were I'm sure extremely interesting in a way to them because you weren't the same old, you know, summer camp person they've been with for the last 10 years or five years. So I think it's so hard for, for many to like see that, you know, when they go into a new world, you know, how they're uniquely different and why people value that perspective. So it's neat. You, you were able to learn that at such a young age. So, yeah, totally. So let's, let's maybe shift to, uh, your journey and your maybe professional craft and which is quite distinguished here. How is this, as we're building on this theme of experiencing new worlds and trying new things, right? Tell us a little bit more about the career that you have ventured down and maybe how on this theme of experiencing and finding these new worlds helped you get there. Well, so, you know, my very first job was working in the business school at Queens university. And I had been there as a summer student, the last two years of my, I went to camp from 17 to like 21 or something and 22. And then the last two years of university, I kind of worked in this executive development program doing Fizzetti stuff, baseball games and exercises and stuff. And then they came to me and said, we want you to, to work with us full time as a program administrator for this new executive MBA program. And I was like, but I'm a phys ed grad. Well, don't you want to be calm for that? Because in my mind, you needed to be a business person 
you needed to be a commerce grad. And my director said, no, look, he's like, this is what I love about phys ed grads. You're smart. You got into this school. It was a very, it's one of the hardest schools to get into in, in the country. So he's like, you got into the school, so you're clearly smart. Secondly, I love that you're really, really social. Like your, your personality, your social, your extroverted. That really helps. I love that as a phys ed and a sport person, you know what it takes to compete as a team, that you understand team behavior. And then lastly, I, I love that, I'm trying to think of the fourth, there was a fourth point there now, I'm, I'm blowing, but it was like, look, like you're, you're, you're social, you're extroverted, you're competitive, you know how to, to, to work in a team and you're not a freak, you know, like you just, you can get along with most people. And he said, all the other stuff, I'll teach you that in like 10 minutes. Mm. Those skills that you have are really critical for business and they're really critical for success. Now, we eventually got, there were six program managers. Of the six program managers, four of us were phys ed grads who all came in and take these, took these top jobs in the business school with these phys ed backgrounds. It was the weirdest thing. And Gordon Cassidy, who was the director, who was a PhD in stats, um, just I just remember him saying, look, man, only rocket science is rocket science. This is not, you'll, you got this. All those other things that you bring to the table. So that was one. So that opened me up into the world of business. Then I, I you know, I land in Toronto and um, someone recruits me to work at a web firm. This is the beginning of the internet. And again, it's like, nobody knows these skills. This is not about knowing the skills. This is about having the drive and the personality to be able to succeed and being competitive and passionate. And so I did that, and then I, I I worked into you know worked into advertising as a as a, an account guy, and then I start doing stand up comedy because I feel like I really want to again I'm really curious about this craft of stand up, and I'd grown up watching stand up, and I wanted to know the method to the madness, and the only way to do it is to go, I'm gonna do it, and I'm not gonna like. I'm not just doing a one-off, like I'm getting a drunk and doing an open mic night. Like, no, I want to, like, I want to do it, do it. Like I want to write a, a headline or set. Like I want to go big. So my very first night of comedy ever, I headlined my own show and did a 45 minute set. Because I saw that the way that you typically get into comedy is that you do an open mic night and you do five minutes. And I went to check one out just to check it out. And I went to it and I'm like, this is a shit show. Like this is this is the worst experience anybody could ever go through. This is not that guy's drunk. That guy lost a bet. Like this is horrible. So I went back to a friend. I said, I'm not doing that. How else can I get into comedy? He's like, Well, you can convince a producer to put you on a show, even though you've never done it before. I don't know who's going to do that. So I just said, Well, why don't I just become the producer? Why don't I just produce my own show? How difficult is that? Can be that tough? How do I do that? So I produced my very first show myself, got other friends to open for me, gave all the money to charity, promoted it to friends and family. I was like, I'm starting my stand-up career. Here you go. So, and I did us, it. And I, tell us what that show is about real quick. So the show was called Captain Crunch Flashback. And it was, it was exposing, because all stand-up is based in pain. And so it was exposing the pain of growing up poor, but, not, but using humor to expose that pain. So it was like looking back and like, mm, what's the humor that now that I'm further away from it, how can I look back on that and laugh? So it was called Captain Crunch Flashback. 
<laughs> and I just, I, yeah. But then once you do it, once you're a comedian, then you're a comedian. Once you've done a 45 minute set, they stamp your forehead and go, all right, you're a pro now. You can go, you can go do other things. But such a great, you know, you know, the, the craft of standup, I learned a lot, obviously a lot about, about creativity and performance and everything else. And I absolutely love it. But that idea of like, why don't I just produce the show myself? I don't want to do it the way everybody else does it. I'm, I'm doing five minutes. I got 45 written. So the way to do that is to, you know, own your own show. Mm. And so when I, you know, was, then I started doing that and then got caught in a hotel fire performing in Edmonton, Alberta at the Edmonton Fringe Festival, got plucked from a fifth story window by a cherry picker and taken to the hospital. I get back to Toronto after that. I walk into my advertising agency where I was working as an account guy. And I said, my life flashed before my eyes and account services didn't make the final cut. I want to go into the creative department as a writer. I want my comedy life, my advertising life to be more, you know, more closely aligned. And so I did that. I moved into the creative department as a writer at 27 or something. And then became, you know, junior writer, senior writer, assistant, associate creative director, creative director, executive creative director. And then again, I got that bug of like, I want to do other things. And the only way to do it is to produce my own show. So I started my own agency 10 years ago and it's called Church and State. I, I, I'm so in awe of your story and maybe just your, your navigation of with kind of wayfinding through life and taking all these maybe things that give you a deeper interest, right. In the world and like diving comedy, why not stand up 45 minute talk. And then let me go to my company. I'm just gonna, I need to merge these like worlds. I mean, the, I think the audacity and like the courage and bravery to just take on what you you did right from where you came from is is inspiring in itself in reverse to maybe the last question i asked you were there you know it seems like the, you had this adventurous spirit you break out of these shelter do take on all these different opportunities i'm sure personal life professional life you know all one of the same were there what were some of the maybe the worlds that you dove into or tried to maybe tap into that you banged on the door, maybe you took a few steps in and you said, you know what, not for me. Well, it's really interesting in comedy where you, what you should do in the beginning of your career is be open to all opportunities, right? Regardless of what you do, you should be like, just open to go like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I'll try that. I'll try that. I'll try that. I'll try that. And so as a standup, you do that and you haven't really found your voice yet. Because to find your voice, you really need to just, you just need a lot of stage time. And so I hadn't found my voice and people were like, do you want to do like a golf tournament? Do you want to be a comedian at a golf tournament? I was like, yeah, I'll do that. That sounds like fun. Yeah, great. What, people are playing golf all day and then I go in? Can I swear on this podcast, Brian? Yeah, all, by all means, let it go. It is a shit show. Being a, a, a comic... <laughs> at the end of a golf tournament is a shit show. It is the worst experience of my life. I think I did it three times. And then I said, new rule, never doing a golf tournament again. Don't book me for it, I don't want it. And so there were reasons there, right? Which was one, people, you need to, great comedies when you have great insight about something. And I hate golf, I'm not passionate enough about golf to find the insight about what's funny about golf. So I hate golf. 
Secondly, because I hated golf, I wouldn't golf with them. I wouldn't go out and immerse myself in the activity where I could find things that happened throughout the day to find humor. So I'm starting cold when I start. I'm addressing a bunch of people who've been in the hot sun all day, most of them overweight business dudes who are just there to raise some money for charity. They eat a steak dinner, the blood goes to their guts, they're already half in the bag, they're sunburned. And then I get up with no insight about the thing they just did. And I go, hey, well, coffee's weird, huh? You know, and like, it's just, it was, and the, and the only way to win in that, to win over that crowd is to be a dude's dude, to go out and to like hammer people and spritz with the audience and make fun of people to their face. And that's how you do really well with that. And that wasn't me. I just knew that wasn't me. And so I was, you, you quickly write, mm, mental note, never doing another one of these. Got it. Okay, I removed that from my list. I'm not a golf course comedian. And then slowly but surely, you just like, you just continue to do that and you strike certain things off from your list. And I remember I was performing at, I think this is the secret, that I was performing in Edmonton, that's where I got caught in that hotel fire. And I was performing a one-man play based on the stand-up. And um, I, there's a moment of kind of silence in the room where I'm like, I know it's went out of focus there. Um, and uh, there was somebody in the front row, there's this kind of poignant moment in the play. It's really silent. And the line is, so, hey, be careful. And the be careful part is a callback to something earlier in the play. So I'm there, this sold out room, and I go, so, hey, and in that beat, before I say the line, a woman in the front row goes, <gasps> and she knew what the line was gonna be before I said the line. And that's hands down the most powerful moment I had on stage because it was one person who just went, <gasps> and she was, I had her emotionally. I had her in the palm of my hand. I could take her wherever I wanted her. She was so dialed in that she knew the next line and was moved by what the next line was going to be before I even said it. And so that feeling, I was like, that I wanna experience that feeling again more. I, how do I do that? And so that's what led me into speaking, which is like doing club comedy is really fun, but you don't get those moments of brilliance where like to me, um, the, the moment of silence that follows a punchline when you make a statement that's really insightful is way more powerful than the uproarious laughter which preceded it. So there's, it's way more, I think comedy is way more powerful the second after the punchline than the second before. Mm. And, and I just, I thought, oh, I can use comedy to set people up and to have fun and make them open to it, but to be there to deliver a more important message wow. about their life, about their business, whatever. So that, I think that was like, how do I, once you feel something, you should, the pursuit should be about duplicating those feelings not about duplicating the experience. Mm. The pause after the punchline. Yeah, 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 yeah. One, well, I think, what a powerful story. Just like it was so visceral and evocative. You know, you had her emotion in the palm of your hands and you could take her where you wanted. And I love what you said about, you know, it's not about duplicating the experience, right? But creating more of those, those moments where you can do that. Ron, you know, I think you've taken a, a pretty meaningful path with uh, what you've done with church and state and some of the books that you've written. And so but to that point around that driving people in the emotion, having them in the palm of your hands, how have you 
maybe use that a more emotional fuel to make an impact on other people and brought that into your work and created ideas and born hatched ideas out of that within you know your professional career i that's a great question brian i think i mean i think i think being vulnerable and and honest about stuff is can help other people who may be struggling with that or they you know i think people i remember having you know an assistant and we we're talking about people in the agency and stuff and i was like well, why don't people do this and why don't people do that and she's like she said hey we're not all you like we don't and i don't and she didn't mean that as like you're better than anybody it was like what she meant was like we don't all have that trait that we want to do the things that you do like different things you know, kind of move us and inspire us. And we're not all want to be entrepreneurs. And I just remember saying like, but you know that like, I'm afraid just as much as you are. Like lie, I lie awake at night worrying about my quote unquote job, probably more than you do be, you know, like that I, I do worry about all those things. And I, and I'm, and I don't always have the answers. And I, sometimes I feel stupid and yada, yada, yada. And so I think it's being open with that and kind of sharing with people hey, this is, you know, this is important that I share this honesty with you. And I think that's when people buy you. They buy you because of your imperfections, because of your authenticity. They don't buy the stock photo version of what a CEO, what an entrepreneur looks and acts and sounds like. The person who uses the same buzzwords who's just trying to live up to some ideal that somebody else created, I think is bullshit. And so there isn't one stock photo of what an entrepreneur is supposed to look and act and sound like. You know, I remember last year around this time, we had like a holiday party. And after we had been in COVID and everything and gone into virtual teams, and I had a baby two days into COVID, my wife and I had a baby two days into COVID. Like it was insane. It was a crazy period emotionally. And we were talking about our favorite meetings of just like, hey, what's your favorite like thing that happened in a meeting, a virtual meeting? And I just, and they're like, what about you? What was your favorite meeting? And I, and I started to cry a little bit because I said, you know, at the very beginning at a new baby, I lost every speaking gig for the next year. I had no idea what was going to happen to the agency and to the people we employed at the agency and no clue. And it was the worst two weeks of my life. And then we won, we pitched a project and it was like for $200,000 or something. And we won it. And that meaning, I remember thinking, hmm, maybe everything's going to be all right. Like, maybe we'll be okay. Maybe I'll be okay. Maybe, you know, we won't lose anybody. We won't have to fire anybody, you know, like all that kind of stuff. And just that moment, I'm sharing that with the group. And it was this weird moment of silence where they're like, oh my God, he's crying. <laughs> you know, the team was like, what's he doing? He's crying. Oh no. And, and then I apologize for it. And people were like, Oh no, 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 no. That was, that was a real moment. And I think, uh, I think your teams need to see leaders having real moments. And, um, that's where you get more loyalty. I think that's where you get better work. And I'm, you know, I just, I, um, you know, the, the kind of the honesty that I've shared with you here today, I, there's nothing that's not public knowledge that I wouldn't share with my team. Wow. So impactful. To cry. Uh, I had a couple of moments when I cried in front of my people, my team this summer and fall. And uh, incredible what happened after that. I want to play that question, 
throw that back to you. Like when, when you were able to be vulnerable, um, maybe strip down your masculinity in front of people you respect and you're, you're on the same guiding the ship with, how did they respond to you? What, what was, what, what did you see after maybe when you kind of like let that guard down a bit to be yourself? Um, well, I think, you know, it, it wasn't, it was, it was slightly unexpected. I don't think anybody had seen me cry before, but I, what I sensed was that people were like, Oh God, me too. <laughs> you know, like, cause nobody had ever taken the time to ask, like to look back on that and to revisit all those weird experiences and emotions that we all had in March, 2020. And so I think that's really what it was. It was like, ah, oh, thank God somebody else was ex- kind of thinking the same thing I was thinking. And so it kind of unified us as a team. Yeah, totally. How special, how special. And, and Rodney, you know, I know we've been touched a ton on your day-to-day in life, but I, I appreciate the vulnerability, right, that you, you've, you've brought to the show. Um, something I want to ask you more on the personal side, you know, just as we've been going through it, you know, you, you mentioned to me prior to the show about just becoming a father and taking the unusual path to get there. And, and thanks for sharing a bit, you know, maybe uh, some things on the show that maybe contributed towards that experience for you as a dad, you know, this is, you, you see, you've done it a little later than most of it. My dad's 61 or two and he has a, you know, a 12 year old half sister. So, you know, you know, yeah. because there, there's some good hope out there. <laughs> yeah. um, what, uh, what has been the most enjoyable or meaningful aspect of fatherhood for you? Um, I think it's just, you know, being the dad that for them that I didn't have, you know, like I just, I just want them to, you know, I tell them I love, I hug them and I kiss them and I tell them I love them like 40 times a day. Wow. 40 times, 50 times a day. Like it's just nonstop to the point they're like, leave me alone. You know, the four-year-old is like, leave me alone. Um, and so I, you know, it's like we talked about, you know, breaking that cycle. And so I didn't have good role model as a dad or a stepdad. And I just think like, all right, well, I'm gonna, you know, I'll try and be that for them. So mm-hmm. that, you know, you know, like a like a I think yeah, I think kids should just grow up going, oh man, my dad really loved me. And I just, you know, it was such a great home environment. That's all they should really get. Mm-hmm. And and I didn't have that, but um, but my, I mean my mom taught me a lot about being a great father by being a great parent herself. Um, but um yeah, I think it's it's just being a loving them and and maybe showing them a different I don't feel the, the pressure because I'm so much older and more confident. You know, that stock photo version of what a dad is. Like, I remember my wife going like, our dishwasher is broke. There's a part that's broke on it. And I said, well, it looks like we're getting a new dishwasher. And she said, no, I ordered the part from Amazon. I watched a YouTube video. I'll be able to fix it myself. No. I'm not that guy. I'm not the handy dad. I'm not <laughs> fixing stuff. Like, that's my wife. I, she's incredible, an incredible human being. But um, just being the type of dad that I want to be that I think to give them a different experience. It's amazing. Wow. So special. You can be there with your kids and in all those moments and show the love to them that maybe you never experienced. And uh, last question, and then we'll, we'll tell people where to go find you, your book. Can, can I add something though? Yeah. Just before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, cause I think it's really important that I also didn't want to be the dad that was like, 
that gave up my life for my kids. And that's not a self, maybe it's a selfish thing, but I didn't want to, I wanted to continue to travel and work and do stuff that I'm passionate with. Cause I think that's more important than me just simply being in the house with them that yeah. they actually get a role model of somebody who's like, Oh no, my dad loved his job. Like he loved his job. He was really passionate about it. He was really driven. And when he was with us, he was fully with us. But when he wasn't with us, he was doing stuff that really, you know, inspired him. Mm. And I, I, and again, nothing against somebody like my mom was a, you know, was a stay at home mom her entire life. And she found great passion in that, but I wanted to be maybe something a little bit different. Incredible. I mean, you've broken the mold and I think broken the cycle or mold in two regards from a career perspective, from anything you remotely close to what you saw growing up to going your own way. And then from building a family that you never had. And it's uh, really just incredible just to listen to, right? And here, just maybe, you know, the journey is hard and you, you, it seems like gone, gone where your soul has called you. And um, yeah. it's been, this has been such a, such a treat talking to you. I really appreciate you showing up, Ron. Uh, really special. Where, where for the people that don't know you, where can people find you? Where can they reach out to you by your work to give us all the, the download? Yeah, it's easy. Ron Tite, R-O-N-T-I-T-E, rontite.com, Facebook slash rontite, LinkedIn slash rontite. If you want to check out the agency, it's church and state. It is churchstate.com. Yeah, I'm around. <laughs> awesome. Well, you're a pretty tight guy. So uh <laughs> making time. Well, excited to get this out there. And uh, thanks for everything today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.